With over four decades promoting and guiding major projects across Australia, Bruce Pollack is a veteran of the entertainment industry. He is one of our top publicists and has been present at the launch of countless musicals, handled some of the world's biggest stars and sweet-talked the media whilst juggling behind-the-scenes dramas and serving his clients effectively, getting the word out and celebrating the entertainment. In 1956, a chance encounter with the legendary actor Hayes Gordon allowed the eight-year-old Bruce an opportunity to stand in the wings of the Princess Theatre Melbourne during a Saturday matinee of Kismet. It was then that his fate was sealed and he then became determined that the theatre was where he was meant to be. Bruce Pollack publicity was established in late 1982. From his many years of involvement in arts administration and entertainment marketing, he gained all the necessary skills and expertise to establish a successful public relations company that specialised in media relations for the entertainment industry. Over the next 20 years, Bruce Pollack Publicity grew to be one of the largest publicity organisations in Australia. Bruce Pollack is very much a guru, a master of publicity. He comes equipped with a thousand anecdotes and an enthusiasm that never wanes. It is always a pleasure to run into Bruce. The great Oscar Wilde said once that the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Um, is there no such thing as bad publicity? Yes, there is bad publicity. Right. Absolutely. Uh, of which, uh, without going into all yes. of what's happening, there has been cases. Yep. Some, uh, some substantially bad publicity for four parties. Uh, in in those two situations, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just the aggrieved, but the aggriever as well. It's uh, not been good for them, and I don't think that has been good publicity in the least. Um, that's a very specific type of publicity. That's mm. really deep down personal publicity. If you're talking about publicity for a show, such as industry gossip, that 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 comes out of a rehearsal room that the show might be terrible. Or if you're referring to bad reviews that come along, yep. um, or alternatively an overwhelming, a bad report from from public opinion, then yes, it can be bad. So, so, so is word of mouth probably the the, the greatest power of, of publicity of, of yes. getting getting word out? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can't buy that, really. You've just got to can't buy it. Word create of mouth it is somehow. the most important of the lot. Right. Um, uh, reviews are still important. Do you want me to get into this? Absolutely, yeah. Reviews are still important. Yeah, very much so, because there are many people out there who are influenced by reviews. And I must say that uh, although I'm not necessarily influenced by reviews, I am influenced by opinion in that my life is already frantically busy and I really value my available nights. And I do listen to what others say about something before I might rush to go and see it. I mean, there's often been things on which I've wanted to see, um, but I have not, not, uh, not intentionally, but maybe not inadvertently, uh, listen to what other people have said about mm. those things before I make a decision. Because well, when you've got to make a decision out of one of three things, people will choose. And you know, and, and the availability of your time, of course, but also the dollar comes into the equation as well. And you know, you're not going to fork out 
120 bucks to go to the theatre if people have said, oh, well, absolutely. wait for the next one. Yeah, There is absolutely no way. And I'm in an incredibly privileged position in that I get a lot of free tickets. But if I didn't get the free tickets that I get, um, um, I've worked in the arts all of my life. The arts only pays just above, above poverty line. And... Um, uh, no, that's not true. The arts is paying much better. Depending than... where you are on the run. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I could certainly not afford to buy premium tickets mm. for a lot of the arts, which is on at the moment. Absolutely. And, and especially if you're taking a family, a big family, oh. you know, for those big commercial musicals and things. Big commercial musical or the ballet or the opera. Mm. Yeah. Let's let's go right back to to the beginnings. You were born in Victoria, is that right? I was born in Melbourne. Melbourne, yes. You grew up there. Tell me about um, Hayes Gordon and Kismet. Oh, good oh. <laughs> then I have to go back slightly. All right. Um, uh, my father uh, is known as uh, the founder of bringing fencing into Australia. That's the sport of fencing, not the art of putting up fence posts. And, um, and he was known uh, well back in the 50s as, uh, as, as having championed fencing into Australia. Hayes Gordon arrived here to play the lead in Kismet. And Hayes Gordon was a champion fencer as, as for, for recreation. So sought out... Uh, somebody he wanted a champion to fence with. So I sought out my father. And my father f- fenced with Hayes Gordon for Hayes to have practice, just as something to do. Uh, other, my father didn't do it exclusively. My father knew of my unbelievable interest in theatre. It was without question. Even in, I thought it was 56 uh, when when uh, when this happened with Hayes, but um, which means I would have been eight years old. But my interest in the in the arts and the theatre were absolutely Long enormous, even at the age of eight. So this being the second time, in actual fact, that I was taken backstage was for Hayes. I'll quickly pop in the first time is I was taken backstage uh, to meet Evie Hayes. Annie when, Get Your Gun? When she played Annie Get Your Gun right. at yep. Her Majesty's Theatre. And there's actually a question in my mind whether that was before Kismet or after Kismet. But anyway, Father, being a wonderful man that he was, arranged for my brother and I to stand on stage in the OP wing uh, for a Saturday matinee performance of Kismet. And I can honestly say that this was one of the greatest uh, theatrical things that ever happened to me in my life. It changed my life unbelievably. To be standing in the wings as an eight-year-old while a show as big and as wonderful and as complex as Kismet is was just the most amazing thing. It was just Wonderful, Peter. Bitten by the bug. Oh, God, it was fantastic. I was determined that the stage was my life from then on. Your dad, um, if I understand correctly, was an Olympian? Yes. Olympic fencer? He was an Olympic fencer. He uh, 
was an Olympian in Canada. Uh, then when he came to Australia, he brought fencing with him, yes. Uh, but he was on the organising committee of the Melbourne Olympics, which means in '56 he was slightly busy between fencing with Hayes Gordon and putting on the Olympic Games. So, so you're, you're this eight-year-old that's been bitten by the bug. Uh, you quickly then join Melbourne Little Theatre? Melbourne's Little Theatre. Melbourne's Little Theatre at the time... There was, as there was in, in Sydney, the, on, the um, Independent in Sydney was, was a, a Sydney example. The Little Theatre was a Melbourne example. Um, the Little Theatre uh, decided to become more uh, professional. So they became Pro-Am, as it was called, and they changed their name to St Martin's Theatre. But when it was the Little Theatre, sorry, I'm hopping by, my father and mother and my aunt were closely involved with the Little Theatre. My aunt often acted there and uh, often worked in wardrobe. My mother was very much involved with the wardrobe department. And my father, uh, as they often did Shakespeare's plays or plays of that ilk, uh, was the fight director. And, and it was a fight for, for the life of me, I can't remember which play it was, and I wish I could. But uh, I was taken one Saturday afternoon down to, as it had become then by then, St Martin's Theatre, for Dad was rehearsing uh, a Shakespearean fight. And I then met the three owners of the theatre being Peter Carroll, not Peter Carroll, sorry, the Carols were uh, the Princess Theatre. Garnet Carroll. G- Garnet Carroll was, was the Princess Theatre. Yeah. Um, I'll think of it. Yes, it'll George be. Fairfax and Irene Mitchell. There were the three of them who um, uh, set up St Martin's Theatre, turned it professional. And so I was talking to Irene, and to cut a long story short, Irene became godmother to my, to my son. So that's how long I, I stayed friends with her for. Um, she said, well... If you want to be involved in the theatre, come and work here. So it wasn't allowed initially, but I did go and work there when I was 10. And that's when I got my first pay packet in the theatre. Oh, OK, so you were actually working for cash. Yes. Working for money, excellent. I, I went there, I was allowed, I, on the matinees, it wasn't after school, but they didn't do a midweek matinee. Um, but uh, I, because we vaguely lived nearby, I would go up to the theatre in the evenings and stand on a little podium. Programs! Programs! <laughs> and I'm sure the and I got adorableness a pay Sorry? of it all. I'm sure the adorableness of it all, <laughs> you sold many programs. Yes, and I sold the programs. Um, so your family were obviously arts-minded. Yes. Were, you, were you seeing many live performances mm. as a child? They would attend the theatre regularly? Taken to absolutely everything. Oh, that's fantastic. And one of my greatest memories... Uh, well, a great, mem- great memories were my parents uh, were wealthy people and they were a part of the people who they would be at every opening night. Oh, OK, so on, on the invite list. They were on invite lists. My father, because he came to... because he went to Canada as a refugee, was determined to succeed. He became the treasurer of the Red Cross a city councillor for many years, all of these sorts of things. So, But one of my greatest memories was sitting up, waiting for my parents to come home after the opening night of My Fair Lady. Because, as was with anything, we had the LP 
I don't know how many months in advance of the show being here. Uh, it's you know, no different to Phantom of the Opera when we're all listening to the double cassette uh, collection. No, but going back in the 50s, it was, it was the LP, the 33 and a third. And so I knew the music of My Fair Lady backwards. I mean, I could sing, you know, the <laughs> My Fair Lady. And I think Fair Lady was 59. So um, waiting for them to come home on opening night. One of my other great memories, which I think is around that time, and I know I'd be able to work it out. I know it was at late notice that I was a ring-in, but my mother took me to the opening night of June Bronhill in The Merry Widow at the Tivoli Theatre uh, in Melbourne, and uh, it, again, was one of my greatest things that ever happened to me. I fell so desperately and utterly in love with June Bronhill, and from that minute I saw everything that she was in in Australia probably four or five times. Fantastic. So your destiny was certainly stamped at a very young age. Uh, absolutely. Uh, what, what brought your dad to Australia? You said he was a, a refugee uh, in Canada. Dad uh, got to Canada and as most uh, Russian Jews and refugees at that time, they fell into the clothing trade and he became a dressmaker and in Canada... I uh, went to work for Bruck Mills, which was textile printing. And um, textile printing was basically unknown in Australia, so father was sent out to establish the first textile printing uh, factories in Australia. So he came out on behalf of Bruck Mills and eventually left Bruck Mills and set up his own textile printing. And uh, during the war, printed camouflage gear. Wow. And, and met your mum in Australia? Yes, yes. Mother were mother was uh, mother born here, but of English, uh, English Jewish clothing people. Mother's side was was men's suits. Uh, father's side was frocks. Father was frocks, uh, dresses frocks at that time, um, and father's mother's side was in men's clothing. Yeah. Did you have siblings? Were you only... I have one older brother. One older brother. Right. And has he worked? Followed an arts path or no? Not at all. He is in Melbourne and I'm in Sydney. Uh, so you're at the little theatre, you're, you're painting backdrops, you're, I'm, you're I'm learning having, about lighting, you're uh, a flyman. It, uh, every minute I had uh, during school holidays, on weekends, there was a wonderful thing back in those days in that scenery was done by backdrops and, and, um, and flats and sets. And uh, they were painted with um, a powder pigment uh, onto, onto canvas. So uh, what the kids used to get to do was when a show finished, the scenery was brought out into the paddock because St West St Martin's Theatre was, there was a paddock at the back out behind it. It sounds ridiculous in the middle of South Yarra. Um, but it's... Uh, and the scenery would be sat there and we, we'd be there with hoses and and scrubbing down the scenery. Oh, so you um, could uh, repaint the canvas. So it could right. be used and repainted. Yeah. Um, another great job I got was working with the most fantastic, wonderful scenic artist called Paul Kathner, who is still alive, who still on very special times is brought out to do big backdrops for people like the ballet and the opera. Uh, he was head scenic artist there 
and he would teach me the old tricks of how they made things wonderful and and one I always talk about is, is because, as I said, scenery was painted in, in wet paint, um, is if you had a lake, uh, you were sent down to the shop to buy about six bags of sugar, and just before it dried, throw sugar all over it. So it would glisten. So it would glisten. Uh, those little tricks, yeah. Little tricks. And then a wonderful, wonderful technician there called John Morrison, who taught me sound and lighting. And then eventually, as, as I progressed, um, as I said, I did this throughout, throughout, totally throughout school. I was there every minute that I could possibly be there at St Martin's Theatre, plus setting up uh, theatre companies. I set one up um, called the Judean Players. Um, but then when I got to university and I could have more time, I'd then at St Martin's Theatre, I could work in the evenings. At the theatre. At the theatre, yeah. yeah. So what about, um, did you tread the boards? Have you ever on stage? Only once. Once? I think you know that there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I was a singer at school uh, and my drama teacher at school uh, was close friends of a director, a young director. Um, They were St Martin's Theatre, was doing a show called Mumba Jumba and The Bunyip. Uh, which was uh, co-written by Barry Humphreys, uh, one of the few things that uh, Barry has written for the stage for others to perform. And uh, I was cast in this as uh, Jimmy the Boy Scout, who together with his sister Jenny get lost in, in the bush, in the Australian bush, and there's lots of Australian bush animals, koalas and kangaroos and brolgers and frogs and... Um, Anyway, they get lost in the bush and they get very frightened because there's a mumba-jumba, which is a mythical Aboriginal character, and, um, and they get very frightened and uh, uh, the, uh, the bunyip, uh, who's a good character, comes and rescues Jimmy and Jenny and takes them in, back into the arms of the loving uh, domesticated koalas and kangaroos. Jimmy the Boy Scout. Jimmy the Boy Scout. It was it was an experience uh, not to be uh, repeated. Uh, of course, I learnt that I, I had been wearing spectacles from the age of five. So, of course, I had to go on stage not wearing spectacles, uh, which made a complete and utter joke of the whole thing because I was stumbling around the stage. <laughs> I was terrified. I hated it. Uh, well, I tell the aside from having had this role... Please do. ..the Barry Humphreys aside. Yes. Many years later, Barry Humphreys was performing at the Comedy Theatre and uh, I took a date at the time with me to the comedy to see Barry Humphreys in this show. Uh, for, uh, I have no idea I, what it was. And I took with me my autograph book... Uh, as uh, a young child would, but I wasn't that young, and um, uh, went to the stage door afterwards and said, I'd like Mr Humphreys to sign an autograph. And the stage doorkeeper ushered me around the corridors into Barry's dressing room where he was sitting there with a whole lot of other people and they were drinking and he went, welcome, welcome, and come, this is my dressing room, and what do you want? 
And I said, uh, uh, I performed in your play, Mumba Jumba and the Bunyip, etc., and I'm very honoured to have done that, and um, I would really like an autograph. And he turned around and said, what religion are you? And I was astounded that this man in front of all these people at this time after the show and everything would come out with that. And I said, I'm Jewish. He wrote in the, in, the, in the autograph book and handed it back. Thank you, which was obviously an, a reason to get out. So out I went and when I got to the street, what he wrote was, Happy Easter, Barry Humphreys. <laughs> <laughs> He's a devil. <laughs> oh, it's great that you can see the funny side. Of <laughs> <laughs> which I still have that autograph. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So you've got this obsession with the theatre, but you go to university and you study architecture. Right, but um, I was a dunce at school. Uh, I had no interest in um, in, in academic uh, pursuits at school at all. Uh, I was at Scott College, which was a very rah-rah school, where the major uh, concern of the school was to make sure that every boy came out as a brilliant sports person. Uh, academia came way down the list, and uh, arts were virtually non-existent. I'm sorry, up there with sports was to make sure that you were a good cadet. Um, so I had to find ways of surviving at school. So I survived at school by uh, being in um, uh, in the theatre uh, and uh, failing everything that I could possibly fail at school. Um, and my poor father, who had not had a chance to go to university, all he wanted was his sons to go to university and be academic of which uh, my brother is highly academic and we won't go into all of that, but he's highly academic. And there my father had another son who was an academic dunce uh, and failed everything in first-year matric. Uh, And in actual fact, the results of first-year matric came out when I was uh, in rehearsals for Mumba Jumba and the Bunyip. And at that time, the results were published in the newspaper. That's the only way you could get them. And they published the results as the results came out. So English being the most important, that was published on day one. And then maybe a few subjects on day two and a few subjects on day three and whatever. And the papers came out late morning. They came out in the afternoon paper, which arrived. So what would happen, everyone was so kind in the rehearsal room. They were so generous. So from the rehearsal room at St Martin's Theatre, everyone went, come on, come on, let's go round and get the results and we'll get lunch. So round we get the results. English, fail. Oh. Back we went. <laughs> that was a very quiet afternoon of rehearsal. <laughs> was, were you expecting to pass? Or did, did you have a premonition well, about... I thought I might pass something. Right, you were hoping, fingers crossed. <laughs> At least pass English. <laughs> you speak it after all. <laughs> and then I did English Lit, which was... Which was uh, uh, liter- literature and yep. books and things. Greek and Roman history, the lowest level maths and the lowest level science. So I thought I might pass at least English. Well, cut a long story short, the second day, two subjects, fail. The third day, Greek and Roman history, I passed, and the fourth day, I failed two more. So I failed four out of five. 
So I promised my father that um, I had a bet with my father that I would work in the arts if I, he would agree to me working in the arts if I went to university. So, but because I was an academic dunce, and because at that time, am I talking too much? No, it's fantastic. And because at that time, to go to university, there weren't the 600 different courses that there are now, there was arts. And the prerequisite for arts was a language. I didn't have a language. The prerequisite for science, oh, sorry, I, I then repeated the year. Uh, I agreed with Dad that I'd go to university and I'd repeat the year, okay? Identical subjects. Why waste that? (laughs) Why try and do something different? I did identical subjects. some knowledge. And I passed all of them, and I got second-class honours in Greek and Roman history, the one subject I really liked. But I passed everything. It means I wasn't going to get a Commonwealth scholarship, but my father could have paid for me to go to university. So then what am I going to apply for? So, So I couldn't apply for arts. I couldn't apply for engineering because I didn't have enough sciences. Uh, I couldn't apply for uh, law because I didn't have enough histories and arts and you needed to have a history and a subject. Um, There was no way I could do medicine or anything like that. Uh, Literally, I could have applied for arts, specialising in mathematics. What a joke that would have been. (laughs) Or architecture and building. They were the only courses. I, I couldn't apply for commerce because I hadn't done accounting. So that was literally the only university course I could apply for was to apply for architecture, which, of course, at that time was a six-year course. Arts, three? No. What did I get? The second longest I got architecture. Did you have any interest in drawing or or did any Uh, skill? Yes, yes, yeah. I mean... I suppose at the little theatre and that, you might have been doing set design. I was doing those sorts of things. And in actual fact, during architecture, I became top of model making. I adored making models. Um, uh, by the time we got to years f- five and six, we could elect to do subjects. You couldn't elect when you first did architecture, when we first went into it. But when we finished, you could do elective subjects. So I specialised in sound and lighting um, and I specialised in some other things. I did business administration. Uh, I did accounting. I did psychology. <laughs> I did lots of other extraneous subjects as well. So uh, against the statistics of the head of the school, 140 people started architecture each year. And they would say, of the 140, maybe 10 of you will finish this course in the minimum 10 of you will finish and finish the course in the minimum number of years. And I was one of them. Great. Congratulations. So I was determined that I was going to get through that course and I was determined that I was going to get through it in the minimum number of years. So I got through the bloody course. And you enjoyed some success as an architect. During architecture, we did architecture review. We had wonderful fun. I learned a skill which I was very proud of, which I did consult to architects later on in life. Uh, about architecture, uh, about theatre building. So there were certain skills which I did pick up, which I enjoyed enormously. It also gave me the opportunity to work at St Martin's Theatre, which I did a lot of. I often worked at St Martin's, did shows at St Martin's. Yeah, they're professional shows. I'd go and stage manage, uh, not stage, ASM a show at St Martin's in the evenings and the weekends because I, I was able to do it. Yeah. So it's not surprising that one of your big uh, successful architectural um, experiments was the Ararat Performing Arts Centre. Yes. Um, not, yeah. uh, uh, of all buildings, it was a performing arts oriented. 
Absolutely. And, and that happened when I'd uh, finished university and, uh, and joined the Melbourne Theatre Company. I was at St Martin's for a short time. So I got through six years of architecture and uh, in the minimum number of years, it's also where I met the woman who became mother of my son, my wife, mother of my son. I couldn't practice as an architect because, like law, you had to do a, a year of uh, apprenticeship or something. Apprenticeship. Yeah. So I don't have a, um, I'm not a member of the institute, right. but I had a job to go to the day after. People couldn't believe I walked out of the exam and I walked straight into, uh, into, into the theatre for a full-time job. So when did the MTC come along? Because you assisted okay, the great so, John Sumner for a long time. So I went to St Martin Theatre, which was a natural to go to. And in Melbourne at the time, uh, there was basically St Martin's Theatre and the Melbourne Theatre Company. They were was, both... Was it, had it become the Melbourne Theatre Company or the union rep? No, 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 by then it was the Melbourne, Melbourne Theatre Company. Yeah. No, it, it was... Basically, the little became St Martin's and the Union Theatre rep became Melbourne Theatre Company vaguely at the same times. I forget the years, but I think in the late 60s it was, early 70s, the Australia Council had been established and was given money by government and the Australia Council was to fund the arts and the Australia Council, uh, as I said, I can't remember if it, this was in the very start of the Australia Council or further on, but the Australia Council, after some time, made a decision that they would um, fund one theatre company in each state to a major degree, that they did not have the funds to fund, to do lots of small funding. It was going to be far better to fund one company properly than funding lots of small companies. So where there had been the St Martin Theatre and the Melbourne Theatre Company, both eking out in existence, the Australia Council gave a lot of money to, to one, which became the Melbourne Theatre Company, and virtually zero to St Martin's Theatre. Right. Um, now, I was working at St Martin's at the time. I was a uh, senior stage manager there, and it was a great honour of mine to pull the final curtain at St Martin's Theatre on John Ewing's wonderful production of Cowardy Custard. Uh, I just threw that in. And I, love it. I love it. We need more of that. So, um, <laughs> which had wonderful people in it, like the departed now John Finlayson, uh, Liz Hayes, Marion Edward, Michael Caton, and I think Nancy was in it. I think, I can't remember. Nancy Hayes. I think Nancy was in it. So about four months leading up to the closure of St Martin's Theatre, there was meetings. We were told that the Melbourne Theatre Company was going to take over the building, um, take over the running of the building. It was going to be an adjunct to the Russell Street Theatre, which they had at that time. Uh, and we were each interviewed as potentials for what we wanted. And the wonderful, wonderful Carrillo Gantner, who uh, was, um, I'm not sure, I don't think they called him general manager, but for, for our purposes we'll call him general manager, of the Melbourne Theatre Company. Uh, he and I, and I spoke. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be, in the end, a director. I'm not totally sure, but I want to be a director. And the Australia, they had money from the Australia Council for two trainee director positions with the Melbourne Theatre Company. So after lots of discussion and negotiation, I, together with Nick Enright, 
were made the trainee directors at the Melbourne Theatre Company. Wow. That time. Right. And Nick, quite specifically, went to, was um, assigned to work with uh, the, um, the theatre and education team. Melbourne Theatre Company was unlike a theatre company that you may be able to think of, Peter. It was. It had the Russell Street Theatre. It had... We were performing in a comedy theatre. There were two theatre and education companies. There were workshops to be unrivaled by workshops at, at the moment. Paint departments, like I can't tell you. Huge, huge departments. So then taking on the St Martin Theatre as well was just another adjunct to what they were doing. And the wonderful Carrillo was able to get it through and I became assistant. I, I was there on an, a trainee director's grant but as assistant to the director now assistant to the director meant i was john sumner's personal assistant and john sumner was the great father of subsidized drama in australia running what had been the union theatre repertory company moving on to the melbourne theatre company and it was a massively massively successful company um one of the great um uh pluses of, of these sorts of podcasts is that I can do six degrees of separation and in some instances one degree of separation. So can you tell us about the great John Sumner and, and what, what was he like as a man and, and as a, a, a theatre artist? He was an amazing man in that uh, his, his, his uh, nickname was Blackjack. Um, that, that, that implies he might have been a bit of a villain. Uh, which, which, Did you he know, instill he were, fear in people? Oh, absolutely. And yep. he had a doer, I mean, he had a very doer look on his face a lot of the time. He lived down on uh, the Esplanade down at Brighton, which I think is a bit of an indication of who the man was. He was, he was a seafaring man. And we all just imagine John in the worst weather possible standing out there on, on Brighton, on, on St Kilda Beach, getting weather beaten. With a polar neck and a pipe. Absolutely. He adored (laughs) Bernard Shaw. He adored Shakespeare. Hardly a season went by without a Bernard Shaw or a Shakespeare. He loved New English writers. He's absolutely supported Australian writers. He loved artists. He really loved, loved artists. But he also loved doing good theatre. He was an incredibly astute businessman in that... You know, he came up with the idea of it staying as part of the Melbourne Theatre Company. He never, ever wanted the Melbourne Theatre Company to be a separate independent body. He said, no, we're a department of the university, which it still is. Right, really? Okay. Absolutely. He was incredibly astute. He knew how to play the funding bodies and to go and get money out of government and to get sponsorship. He had the wonderful John Finlay... John Finlay was, is considered to be the father of selling uh, subscriptions. He created how to sell subscriptions and how to put packages together. And John Finlay did it for both the ballet and the Melbourne Theatre Company. He worked full-time for the Melbourne Theatre Company and, but did it for the ballet at the same time. I think it was the ballet was the other first one. And John was the one who absolutely supported John Finlay of how to sell subscriptions. And it was unforgivable, unforgi- unforgivable, unforgettable sight that, that these men had worked together on, on... We used to open subscriptions for a new season on a Saturday morning and, and subscriptions would open in person 
because everything was done in person at that time. No computers. No computers were either done in person or cut out the coupon at the bottom of... And sent mail it in. At the bottom of the... Of, it's now Spectrum, but at the bottom of the big section of the art section of the age and cut it out. Of course, and, so there wasn't even a, a season brochure. At that no. Time. No, no, right. So do it in person. People would arrive or stay overnight from the night beforehand and we would open the theatre and people were queued in the theatre across along all the rows, and everybody, actors were asked to come and do it, but admin staff or non-performing staff, we were there from some of us, you know, really early in the morning, handing out coffee and buns and food to everybody. And John knew how to make it an event. Yeah, yeah. And got it in the publicity and everything, that this is how the Melbourne Theatre Company was doing it. He was a phenomenal man mm. and wonderful for me to work with. He, he would... Um, especially when he was in rehearsals, um, he would often ring me on the weekend and say, come round, I need to talk to you about some season planning for next year. Because I was integrally, he, he absolutely uh, um, used me as a sounding board for, for season planning. Um, I was lucky enough to be responsible for casting in the sense of, and it, we were... There would be on, on in any week. I would see maybe six new actors a week. I ran the play reading service. The untold number of unsolicited works came in, and we had uh, on not on not in house staff, but on, on staff we would have had about ten readers, and uh, each play was read by two or three people, and then their report had to be compiled. And that was generally compiled in-house by a secretary that I had at the time who would compile reports and that went off to the, to the poor playwright. Or <laughs> um, the successful playwright. I imagine you're success- doing a, a lot of new Australian works. Moving on to the next thing that I was responsible for, together with Jonathan Hardy, who's no longer around. Jonathan, who used to run theatre and education, but also ran the workshop side in that we would do a workshop of a play maybe once a month and these would be rehearsed depending on availability. We would generally do them with professional people uh, for a uh, uh, a minimal, minimal payment with minimal rehearsals and then they would get a workshop reading and these would be plays that have come out of the play reading service we would always do plays that way. An established play would not have got a reading. And we had a youth program where on Saturday morning there were classes for, for youth theatre. But youth theatre was not kids, it was young teenagers. Teenagers, right, yeah. 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 Teenagers into early 20s. Because there's not, not a lot around at that time, I imagine, for no. kids into, uh, I don't that know. were like yourself, that no. just wanted a career in Absolutely. Theater. So that was all happening... So where did your life... So a, oh, outside oh, of that, another one. Yep. there was one other thing. I knew there was one other thing that he had me responsible for. In that because of my architectural background, um, the pro- premises that we were in, in Montague Street, uh, was a terrible, terrible, terrible factory, which, you know, if it rained heavily, we had to stop rehearsals. Because and, of the tin roof. Oh, because of the tin yeah. roof. Right. Not because of the sound. We went ahead because of the sound, but with the leaks opened, oh, then right. we had to stop. Something new about my architectural background. So he'd say, there's this big, big building 
available on so-and-so street nearby. See if that's a potential for us to move into. Oh, so you were scouting for premises. For so I to get John and I would go scouting for premises, and then I'd sit down there at the drawing board, planning out whether we could fit in our workshops, rehearsal rooms, offices, etc., etc., etc. For which I was very disappointed that um, the building they eventually moved into, he found about eight months after a year after uh, I was there. So I didn't get to do the plans for that one. But the one I did get to be involved in was that he took on the Athenaeum Theatre. All right, yep. In Collins Street. And he said, had me working on the, uh, the conversion that back into a theatre. So that was great to do that for him. So, yes, there were many, many, many different things I was doing. And it's important there were all these different things because I was also working with Carrillo in budgeting, doing all of that side. I was literally directing. I was doing administration and I was doing technical side. Uh, I was doing stuff all over the place. So, And as I said, John and I were very close. He was very good to me. And he said, Bruce, you will never be able to specialise if you stay in Australia. You need to leave. So I made the decision, I'd go. So I'd been to England once and I uprooted the whole family and off we went to England. Did uh, you know what you were going to do? Or did in you 75. About what you wanted to no, do? No, I had no. Some, somewhere for us to stay. Right. I had some contacts, uh, one of which was right to the head of Theatre Projects, which was the big theatre building company around the world. Uh, I had theatre friends because some visiting directors had been to Australia and I'd made friends with them wrote to them and uh, I answered other jobs and things and what I said was the area of work that I first get a job in is what I'll stay in. Right. And I was offered a job in at Theatre Projects to go and manage a massive theatre building project in an Arab-based country and they, we're now talking mid-70s. Yep. And they said, now, Bruce, you may want to think about whether you're going to leave your wife and child here and you just go. And the other thing we suggest is that Polak is a uh, very Eastern European, potentially Jewish name. Maybe we can get you a passport in a, another, another name. name. I just went... This job is not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Something in your water. This job is absolutely not for me. So then Ian Giles, who I had worked with in Australia, um, was uh, artistic director of the Phoenix Theatre in Leicester and said, Bruce, I need a stand-in production manager up here in Leicester. Come and be production manager for me at the Leicester. Uh, It probably also means your general manager because the, the Phoenix doesn't have a general manager. So anyway, I went up there and to cut a very long story short because you want to get back to Australia, I went up to, to the Phoenix. I became uh, production manager at Leicester Phoenix. The Phoenix was a part of the whole Leicester Theatre Trust. Uh, eventually, I became general manager of the Phoenix Theatre. Uh, eventually, I became general manager of the whole Leicester Theatre Trust, which included the Phoenix. The Phoenix wasn't just the Phoenix. It had... Um, uh, three theatre and education companies and one corporate company. So it actually had four companies that travelled the road and they performed in-house. The Haymarket had uh, its 2,000-seat theatre and the studio theatre. So I was man- general manager of, of a theatre company that had three venues and four touring companies. So 
And whilst at Leicester, uh, Robin Midgley was the artistic director. You want me to keep talking about Leicester? Absolutely. Uh, uh, yep. Leicester had... Robin Midgley had a history. Uh, the Leicester Theatre Trust was the sixth biggest regional rep in, in England at the time. There was Manchester, Sheffield, etc., etc. Leicester was the sixth biggest of them. In this godforsaken city, you know, which only specialised in Indian restaurants and Elvis Presley... Uh, how on earth it had such a successful repertory company is nothing altogether. Robin Midgley specialised in doing one big musical each year. Huge big musical. And they were done professionally. And he did a long run of them, like a six, eight-week run. And these big musicals came to the attention of one Cameron McIntosh because um, Robin wanted to do Oliver. And Cameron at the time held the rights to Oliver. Uh, this was the original production with the wonderful revolve Sean, Sean in it. Kenny sets. Yeah. Yep. And Robin wanted to, to do it. And to cut a long story short, the triumvirate was established. And what the triumvirate was, was that it was a partnership of the uh, Arts Council of Great Britain, Cameron Mackintosh and the Leicester Theatre Trust. Uh, Leicester was to mount the productions with a creative crew and casting to be approved equally by Cameron and Robin Midgley. But Leicester would then mount the production for the production to play in Leicester for its normal run of season that it would do, which would be about six weeks. Once the production finished at Leicester, it then became the property of Cameron McIntosh but under licence that Cameron then had to tour it to eight major regional centres around Great Britain. And that was done with funding from the Arts Council of Great Britain. So what happened was that the regional, these big regional centres then got big musicals, which they weren't getting. Nothing was going to the regional areas. And then at the end of the regional tour, Cameron then had the right to take the production into the West End. And the amount of money that each of the three parties earned from their various different relationships depended very much on where it was at the time and etc. Uh, Oliver was the first of these. Uh, Fair Lady was the second. Uh, the third was uh, Oklahoma, which starred the Australian John Dietrich, which uh, when Jamie Hammerstein was not able to cast the role and we were all sitting around in the office together. Cameron, Jamie and I were sitting in the office together and Jamie said, I really don't know what I'm doing. You know, I've really got to cast this role and I saw this Australian today with this astounding voice and I said, oh, who's that? And he said, Jod Dietrich. I said, the role is now cast. We're not going any further. And Dietrich played the role and we had to go through a huge business to get him into the country and, uh, and you know, I had to be taken through immigration to get hold of John because he arrived the day before we were starting rehearsals and that's where he met his future wife and etc. Um, and, and that production came out here as And well, that production yeah. then came here and I'll come back to that in one second. And then the last thing I did for uh, the Triumvirate was the first production of uh, Rocky Horror to leave London. It uh, then came and played Leicester and again did the regional tour, and that was with Daniel Abeneri when Daniel first got cast in the role. Right. And then soon after that, I left Leicester after much pressure from friends to return to Australia. Uh, I left 
being general manager of the Leicester Theatre Trust and um, executive producer of four big musicals for Cameron Mackintosh to um, come back to Australia. I will say that I have never regretted anything in my life and I don't regret having returned to Australia. But in certain ways, I wish that I'd stayed <laughs> uh, as, as a part. Well, I wasn't a part of the Macintosh organisation, right. but I think I could have become. But anyway, another subject. Sliding doors. It's not worth So it. I then returned to Australia and became general manager of the Nimrod Theatre Company. And then at the end of 82... So Nimrod's being run by, is it John Bell at the time? G- Nimrod and... had been run... Right. By John Bell, Richard Werrett and Ken Haller, with Paul Isles as uh, general manager. Uh, Richard Werrett uh, left that triumvirate. We talk about triumvirates all over the place. Left that artistic triumvirate to be general manager, uh, to be artistic director of the Sydney Theatre Company. And uh, there was then a coup at Nimrod and uh, uh, Ken Haller was thrown off the board of the Nimrod Theatre Company and thrown out as a co-artistic director, uh, leaving two co-artistic director positions available at Nimrod, uh, which were then filled by Neil Armfield and Aubrey Meller, together with John Bell, and Paul Isles then left uh, Nimrod, having co-orchestrated the coup and went to the Adelaide Theatre Company. South Australian Theatre Company. And that's when I joined Nimrod with Ken Haller having been thrown out and three new art- two new artistic directors to join the management of the place and a new... Uh, These names have all become significant contributors to Australian theatre. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Totally and utterly. Including yourself. So uh, at the end of 82, having done the most successful production ever to have happened at the Seymour Centre, being uh, the 10-week production of... 10-week season of Mel Gibson and Warren Mitchell in Death of a Salesman, which played to 117% from its first performance, 117% because the York Theatre seats 788 seats and you're allowed to go to 700 and... uh, You're allowed to go to 800, 22 seats standing each... 22 standing position, which we sold every performance before the show opened. So that's why we played to 117% every performance <laughs> I for 10 weeks. I wonder what the maths were on that. Oh, don't worry, I know it. So after having had that great success at the Nimrod Theatre Company, I decided it was time for Subsidised Theatre and I to part ways. And after about six months, having been a, uh, a manager, a personal manager for a short time, uh, where I managed Jeannie Lewis with her phenomenal production of uh, PF, which she did. Uh, the, we go back in time to Carrillo Gantner, who by this time is now running the Playbox Theatre Company uh, in Melbourne, and rings me up and says, the Playbox is coming to Sydney, and uh, I know of publicists in Sydney, but I don't know them, and uh, you've never been a publicist, but you've run three theatre companies, each with a huge publicity department, um, you must know something about how to be a publicist. You're going to be our publicist. Did you know anything about being a publicist? Or was it you, well, cr- you created your own job description? Well, I'd run Melbourne Theatre Company that had three in the publicity department, Leicester Theatre Trust that had two in the publicity department, and Nimrod, which had the wonderful Ailsa Carpenter, 
So I vaguely knew what publicists did, but how they did it, I didn't necessarily know. So I said, yes, of course. So I then rang my very, very dear friend, Jan Batten, who at that time was a publicist with Ray Francis, who was the great uh, film publicist. And I said, I'm about to be a publicist. What do I do? She said, very simple. You buy every newspaper every day and you write down the name of anybody, and this is for anybody who wants to be a publicist, I promise you it's not changed. You write down the name of anybody who writes anything of a story that may be arts-related, anything, whether it's urban affairs because that's where the theatre is located or whatever, anything. Write down the name of any journalist. Get the green guide as it was then, it's still, the guide is still around, and write down the name of every program on radio that you think could be, and listen to every program on radio, where there could be an interview or a mention of theatre. And then what do you do? How do you find out how to contact these people? You go to the white pages and you look up A, B, C and you get the phone number of the A, B, C <laughs> and you ring them up and you say, could I please have the name of the producer of... What program was on in the moment? Yes, Robbie and Wendy program that starts at six in the morning on a weekday and they tell you their name. And could I have their phone number? Yes, you get the phone number. And that's how you build up your media list. And that's what I did. And she said, you build up a media list and then you write a press release. I'll send you some samples of what a press release should be like. And um, Carilla already had a press release. And you write, you make, and by then we had to have addresses. And you make up a list of names and addresses and you will send that press release to all of those people. And if you don't want to send it, just put it in an envelope and take it round to the buildings where those people are located and drop them off. And that's what I did. And then I started ringing the media. And you learn things like you don't ring, you don't try and talk to a breakfast producer at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's no use ringing Alan Jones as producer at his work number at three o'clock in the afternoon. What sort of F-wit are you that thinks the person's going to be there from two o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon? Yes. You don't ring, as it was then, Metro, which was the Friday insert into the Herald. You don't ring the Metro editor on, on Thursday and attempt to have a long chat because they're putting the paper together. So you learn these things. If you're astute, you learn to be a publicist. You've not only publicised theatre, but uh, a lot of live events, concerts, uh, individuals, etc. Um, huge names like Diana Ross and Barbara Streisand, Bette Midler, Liza Minnelli, Michael Crawford. I could go on. Uh, do you find that those folk are generally easy to work with? Yes. Yeah? Enormously so. It's in their interests for yes. you? Yes. Yeah? There's only one... Uh, that I've uh, of superstar level that I've worked with, and that was Prince, and I come back to Prince, who was the antithesis of all of the people who you've mentioned. Right. Um, generally, uh, these people have got fantastic managers, and um, and presuming you have asked the right questions beforehand, then they're wonderful to work with. Uh, but. Uh, and, and the people are fantastic themselves. There was the, you know, the standard Diana Ross stuff in the do not look, do not uh, do eye contact, 
do not address her first, always call her Miss Ross, etc., 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 etc. All those demands came with it. Oh, it's all you're yeah. told. Right. Absolutely. Okay. And then it comes to the day when we're going to be doing uh, three, two lots of TV and a, and a radio station. And I say, who's coming? No, it's just you and her. Huh? So you're escorting and there'll be a, the... there'll be a security person in the front seat, but just the two of you. Huh? <laughs> Were you a fan? Ha! <laughs> yes, I take that as a yes, OK. And uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough is still my favourite song. You go and collect her and you stand outside the room and, uh, and you become incredibly close friends with security guards. I can't tell you how close you get to, to, to security guards. Well, like you no, nobody ever talks to them, really. Nobody so, talks to them. And yeah. the amount of time you spend, spend sitting outside a hotel room or standing outside a hotel room. So eventually she comes out and... Good afternoon. I'm, I'm, and I'm bullshit as far as I'm concerned. Good afternoon, Ms Ross. What we're doing today is the following, etc., etc., etc. You know, good, excellent. And tell me a bit about this person. And chatty. Chatty. In the car, Chatty. I take her to Channel 9 and there's the dressing room and they, you know, typical of, of TV people who you think there's a writer or don't speak to her as Ms Ross always say, don't say Diane or always say, you know, G'day, Diana, well, we've got all this stuff for you. Anyway, so there was all this stuff in the dressing room that they wanted her to autograph. She said, not a problem. And uh, so I went to pull the door close. She said, no, Bruce, you come in here. I just sat with her the whole time. They're wonderful people. Elton is fantastic. Michael Crawford, if you, as long as you work with them in the right way and you understand what their foibles are, then everything is okay. So I, I suppose you've got to be a bit of a psychologist as a, as a totally. publicist. You've got to understand people and how they tick. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. The Hoff. I mean, did anyone have foibles? He did. But, anyway. but yes, you work with them. I imagine a great deal of discretion is required in your job. Yes. You see a lot of stuff that... Yes. You keep... Thin, uh, bite your tongue. You don't talk right? about? You don't talk about? Yeah. No. So we won't. <laughs> and we won't. <laughs> Tell me about um, how important is it to blow your own trumpet in this business? Because, you know, we see the arrival of social media and, and every performer, actor seems to have a, a, a social... Oh, and show and theatre companies seem to have a social media account in which they can sort of start to create their own brand and, and build an audience. Is that really important to to your role? To my role, so I might be different to others in that I don't believe that's true. Right. That uh, they need to do that. That, that the publicist needs to build their oh, okay. own yep. profile. So I certainly... It's in, uh, social media is imperative within the arts profession. Absolutely imperative. I mean, everything is based on social media now and the success of social media. I certainly use social media and I put things out there on social media, but I'm not on a daily basis posting on social media. Um, what I am in there to encourage is my clients to do that, either my client being an, an act or a theatre show or a person or whatever, or a theatre show and the cast of that show to all be using social media. It's imperative for them to be doing it. Yeah. What's the most bizarre thing that you've had to publicise? Whether that be a show or an act? Uh, I'll Will I tell you about a stunt? A stunt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
something which has been quite, you know you've, you've thought how do I how do I sell this? I can't remember the name of the show, and this is going to be terrible. But it was actually the result of, of, of court cases and things. But I once had to do a stunt of a fake pope on a fake pope mobile coming to meet the media. It was the worst thing that's ever happened to us in our lives. Was the Pope in town at the time? The Pope was about to arrive. Right. And they built a fake Pope mobile and they said um, the, uh, a team of cardinals and the Pope mobile is going to leave so-and-so point and travel from there to the cathedral to test the route. If the media would like to join the Pope Mobile on the route, then please do so. <laughs> it was a disaster. The media found out it was a disaster. The Pope Mobile turned up late. It was <laughs> everything was wrong about it. So, what do you do in that instance? I mean, there's that word damage control. That was damage control, and the wonderful Virginia Lovett. Uh, who is now uh, executive director or, or executive manager uh, of the Melbourne Theatre Company. Things go round in circles, an ex-staff member of mine. Um, she was the publicist at the time and she went and confronted the media and said, we're terribly sorry, this is all fake. And, ah, it was awful. What, um, what are the, the talents that are essential for an effective publicist? Um, you have to be creative and that is creative. You have to have, a, you have to be able to see what the media is about. In that it's no use just listening to a radio program and going, that person is going to uh, want to interview my clients. You have to be able to listen to that presenter and, and work out for yourself what is going to be of interest to that person. Because just because you have faith in the product doesn't mean that that journalist or that presenter or that producer is going to want to talk to you about it. So you have to be creative in, in understanding what's the best way of getting your product in front of those people. And that's number one. Number two is to be able to talk. I, I'm really sad about... Uh, what happens in today's society in that people are losing the ability to talk. Um, because of technology. Because and of technology. Of to phones. Um, I often tell this story in that when, and I haven't employed anyone for some time now, I have to say, but when I used to employ people, I'd say, OK, you're one of two publicists. You've got to do a big pitch for something. You're new, new onto my staff. I give you a whole lot of written documents about the, the, the project. I tell you who you're going to be talking to. I tell you what the media is all about. I give you absolutely every bit of background you could ever possibly want about making this pitch. You're going to send that journalist a beautifully constructed email, superb pitch with attachments, or are you going to pick up the telephone to a journalist you've never met or heard of in an area of media you've never dealt before in your life? You go, hi, I'm so-and-so. If they said they're the one who sends the email, out the door. Right. They can't pick up the telephone and go, hi, I'm Bruce Pollock. 
I'm at the moment representing so-and-so and so-and-so. I know you're editor of so-and-so and so-and-so of this amazing publication. Could I please possibly just talk to you if you're not too busy for the moment about this great product of mine? Do you think that's a possibility that I can chat to you for a moment or not? So the personal approach works because it's too easy just to delete that email, isn't it? I say to anyone, uh, as you know, I work with other publicists. I don't employ anyone anymore, but I do jobs in conjunction with other people. And the whole time I'm saying, pick up the effing telephone. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. Ring them. Pick up the phone. The people won't pick up the phone. I had no interest at one time. I had 11 staff, which is like... I stopped that side of the business in 2002. But before, 11, before 2002, I had quite a lot of staff and it was my rule all the time to talk. And the biggest problem I had when I had 11 staff was that they were virtually sitting on top of each other and I'd have people coming to me saying, you want me to talk? Then you put me in a position where I'm able to talk. <laughs> yes, that's true. Too. Yeah, that's space to do it. Which is the reason, the best the reason why I could never, ever work in one of those open plan offices. Hmm. People wouldn't have me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so think back to, you know, that, that eight-year-old kid who was absolutely infatuated with the theatre. And, you know, there, there might be a kid listening now who wants to be a publicist. What advice would you give them? How do they go about becoming a publicist? Can they serve uh, apprenticeships with people uh, it's like It's incredibly you? hard. Uh, what was somebody the other day said to me was talking to me about um, their daughter. And this person has, has worked in the arts all their life and he wanted his daughter to... Uh, she wasn't sure what she wants to do in the arts, but, but and he said, well, I'll fund you to, um, to do work experience. Um, I'm very lucky that I, I was able to, in effect, do work experience uh, all of my life. I, I, um, when I was working... As a flyman at the Princess, I would go and find out what the props people would do. When I was uh, general manager at uh, Leicester, um, uh, I would do part-time courses in, uh, in accounting because I need to hone my accounting skills. Having done a bit at university, I needed to improve accounting skills. Um, it is to get every bit of background you possibly can. Um, many people come to us after having done a public relations course or an events course and they say, I'm now qualified to be a, a, a publicist or whatever. No, you're not. You, know, you have to know how to write. You have to know how to talk to people. You have to have an understanding of what the arts is all about. There are people who want to be publicists in the, in the area of fine arts God bless them. There's hardly any space for people to write about the fine arts, but there are people who want to be publicists for the fine arts. And you have to find out about what the fine arts is, what makes an artist tick to be a good to be successful at this work. So what do I say? I say do everything you possibly can in every minute of the day that will get you closer to being there. You have to listen to every, every bit of, of the media that you possibly can, read everything. But because publicity is so allied on any of the jobs that we do, there are two people in equal, equal partnership. There's the publicist and there's the marketing people. It's no use me just being a publicist without any detailed knowledge of what my partner is doing. When I sit there in meetings and they say, well, this is the ad campaign that we're having, so-and-so uh, and so-and-so, and, so and, so, and the producer turns around to me and says... 
is this in line with what you're doing? And I say, yes, well, they're placing ads in the Sydney Morning Herald and the big feature that we have is in the Herald. We've got it coming out on the so-and-so date. They've got it coming out on so-and-so date. That's going to work fantastically. So although I'm not able to go and buy advertising or buy um, taxi backs or something like that, I have to have an understanding of that side of the business as well for me to be successful in my side being a publicist. Um, uh, as a publicist, I'm not, um, uh, I'm not buying uh, digital, um, but digital is so allied to social. So one has to have a knowledge of what digital is and how you buy digital. You can't just be a person who is either uh, writing for social or creating social uh, or possibly creating social and also putting it out. Uh, and I make a distinction there. We often create material for the social department of the marketing agency to put out, which is part of the reason, and I know I've been skipping all over the place, part of the reason why I don't have to be huge in my own social is because virtually every job that I work on the marketing department has its own social department, which is feeding the information out. All we do is create it. So that's why I say it's to have a huge background of information. And you must have a uh, significant, impressive phone book, Teledex. Yes, I do. <laughs> With all sorts of names and I numbers. I do. I collect every contact I get my hands on. Number one and number two... I backed them up in about three different ways. Uh, as we've heard through the podcast conversation today, you've got a wealth of stories. Have you thought of writing a book, putting yes. it all down? You yes. Have? Yeah? Yes, when I stopped work in... Uh, when I closed the business in 2002, a number of people said to me, oh, you must be retiring. And I said, no, I'm changing direction with my business. What about a book? And I said, yes, uh, I will be writing a book and everything will be in it. And somebody said, but yes, but all those stories? I said, well, I have no problems because everything I put in it will be true. Uh, have you thought about what you might call it? Uh, I have... Uh, uh, I have a title, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh... Keep that under wraps. I'll keep that under wraps for the moment. But I actually said there's two books in that. Um, I'm very lucky in that uh, I've had a lot of wonderful, wonderful staff who have gone on to the most superb positions. As I said, Virginia is running the Melbourne Theatre Company, having run the Comedy Festival, etc., etc. Uh, Julianne was head of publicity at. Um, uh, head of Food Publicity at SBS and Deputy Head of Publicity for SBS TV. Lisa Rowan is Head of, of Marketing for a huge big commercial company. Uh, Vanessa, uh, Deputy Head of Publicity at uh, Foxtel. Um, and it just goes on and on. They've all said to me that it'd be wonderful to um, write a book because they all called themselves Bruce's Girls uh, to, for, for me to write a book about what the business was like but with substantial contributions by each of Bruce's girls. So we might say two books. Yes. Right. Thanks for um, chatting to Stages. Pleasure. It's, it's fantastic. It's been an extraordinary insight into the world of the publicist. And, thank you um, very much. We can thank you, Bruce, for... Um... Thank you for doing it. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's, uh, more of this, the better. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, mate. All Stages episodes are available through iTunes, Wooshka and Spotify. 
Have you subscribed yet? Keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released, but you must subscribe. And please take the time to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes directory. You'll be helping to grow our audience and reach more stages listening so they can enjoy these great conversations, just as you have today. I'm Peter Ayers, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.